Welcome to Hauser Community Church Online. Let's join Pastor as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and unpacks the Word of God for us. After the message, we'll tell you how to contact us. Thank you. We praise you. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Father, we are humbled this morning as we think upon and as we meditate on your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we praise you for you are our king. You are the one who comes to save us. We're amazed to know that you would humble yourself by putting on flesh, mounting a donkey and riding to the very people that will cry out, crucify him. And doing so knowing that you're dying for their sin. Our sin is great and deserving of hell, but you and your mercy is more. Jesus, we praise you, our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Judge, our Friend. We ask you for your forgiveness, for forgetting what great lengths you want to secure, or you went to secure our salvation. We ask you for forgiveness each time we cheapen your grace by taking sin lightly. We ask for your forgiveness when we put creation before you, our creator. But Jesus, we know your mercy is more. You not only forgive our sins, you remove our sins from us. You cleanse us. You are cleansing us. You are making us look like Jesus more and more every day. We thank you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We lift now before you, Lord, our request. We ask that you would bring healing to the sick. We ask for comfort for the burdened and the comfort for those who are mourning. We ask for clarity for those who are confused. We ask for strength for those who are feeling weak this morning. That they would see that their, their strength is found in you. Or we ask that you would save struggling marriages. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, grant forgiving hearts to those who are holding on to grudges. We ask for salvation of unbelieving spouses and children and we ask that you would create godly leaders in families who are ready to wash their families in the word. Lord, we want to lift before you our missionaries, the Yonkers. We ask that you would be with them as they help coordinate and train teams that are headed out to all parts of the world to plant churches. And we ask for success in that training and ask for success in those churches as the gospel goes forth, as you are taking your kingdom to the very ends of the earth. Lord, we, we thank you that we're able to gather on Sunday mornings. And we thank you that this isn't the only church that gets to gather, Lord. We, we thank you this morning for Hauser Baptist Church just down the road. That we ask that you would use the pastor to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and that we, as uh, two churches in a small area, would be able to uh, tell people of your glory. Help us to minister well in our communities, that many may come to know you, Jesus. We lift before you this morning our children, as they head to Children's Church, that they would hear your word and sing your praises. 
Speak through the leaders. Raise up godly boys and girls, Lord, that will become leaders in the church and in this country and to the ends of the earth. We ask that you would speak to us this morning through the message that you have given Pastor Kai. I just ask that you would grant him boldness to faithfully proclaim your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, a spirit uh, to apply, faith to apply. Holy Spirit, we need your help. And we pray all of this in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen. Is that too loud? Does that sounds loud to me? Oh, kids, you're released. Have fun. Lord bless you guys in there. All right, I'm excited to celebrate Palm Sunday with you guys this morning. Um, and as we do that, as we head in that direction, can I pull you guys? Can I ask you guys a question? Um, I'm just, I'm just curious. Does, do these, somebody, somebody um, that is certainly not, not a prophet, probably barely a poet, some people would say, said these things. And tell me if you, this sounds familiar to you guys. No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers and dirty looks. Out for the summer, out till fall. We might not come back at all because school is out for the summer, right? Um, and... You know, that looking back on high school, was that anybody's like anthem as they got released for summer? Like, boom, I'm out of here. School's out for the summer. No more teachers. It's all behind me, right? And I think that Alice Cooper does a pretty good job of capturing that spirit um, behind school, where it's been a long, difficult school year. Um, lots of books, lots of teachers, lots of discipline. Um, lots of tough times and hard studying, but now as you go out into the summer, man, the excitement uh, that just permeates a person at that. I will never forget that feeling. And I think that um, Alice Cooper does a good job in some very small way of helping us understand the sort of anticipation of the coming king, of Jesus coming on the scene in such a small way. Um, but man, that is an anticipation that was um, went way, way back. And this morning as a church, I want to anticipate together Jesus' coming, riding in humble, mounted on a donkey um, together as we anticipate Good Friday and we anticipate Resurrection Sunday. So would you guys turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21? Some of you guys are probably already there. Um, and then will you guys turn back like one page or just scroll back one, one swipe, if you will? And I've heard this saying a lot. You guys probably have some, they say, whoever they are, you don't know someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Um, and this morning, as, as we approach both Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I want to walk more than a mile in Jesus' shoes and be refreshed again by his character and his person and look to him and see that he is gracious. He is merciful. He's a dying king. He is a merciful king. He's a servant king. Um, unlike kings that we're in, very familiar with. So before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. 
Lord, thank you uh, that you are a merciful king. Lord, this morning we, we cast ourselves on your mercy, uh, trusting that you have a work to do in our hearts, um, that you want to make your church look more like you. You want to point us to you, the king who is risen and seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, Lord, interceding on your saints' behalf. So we look to you. We anticipate, Lord, that your word does not return void. And so uh, will you accomplish your work in our hearts this morning, in your church this morning? Um, and may we be encouraged as we do so. I ask these things in your name. Amen. So the anticipation of the king, and this is an anticipation that was there from the very beginning of creation, Genesis 1.1, and, and you guys are familiar with these stories. Mankind, Adam and Eve, were made in God's image to do king stuff on behalf of the king. They were made to rule over and have dominion over God's creation. That's kingly language. That is, they were supposed to do it on behalf of the king. They're supposed to live completely for God and for other people. And we also see that, man, they chose not to live completely for God and rather to live for themselves, right? They chose to, instead of living in submission to the king and his good plans, chose to usurp the king. And then we fast forward to Deuteronomy as God's people are redeemed out of Egypt um, and, and they're about ready to enter into the promised land and God wants to re-impress God's law on their heart and teach them again the things of the Lord before they go into the promised land. Um, he's, he knew that when they got there that they were going to demand for themselves a king, even though God said, I'm your king and knew that they were going to say, well, give us a king to rule over us like the nations around us. And so he gave them laws. He said, when there is a king in that place, um, he is to rule completely for God and completely for others. And then we see, man, this, this refrain throughout the book of Chronicles and Kings that so many kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. Instead of ruling for Yahweh, they chose to rule for themselves. And then 2 Samuel 7, God, you have David, and God says, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to put him on the throne forever. And when he said forever, he meant for eternity. There is going to be a king seated on the throne of David. Man, an awesome promise, and it builds this anticipation. When is this king coming all the way back from 2 Samuel 7? And then we have Zechariah 9, 9. We have the people shouting and rejoicing because that king, your king, is coming to you. It's, that king is on the way. After 70 years of Israel being disciplined in a different nation, um, enduring that, um, scattered, no unifying purpose. God's glory had departed from the temple. It was a dark, dark time. And in that darkness comes this prophecy that says, rejoice, your king is coming to you. And, and it begs the question, as we anticipate the king coming, is that where we are in some spots? Are we in a spiritually dark spot? Are we feeling worked by life? Are we drifting around with no place to call home? Are we wondering if there's any purpose or meaning for us to be here? Are we saying, where are you at, Lord? It's dark. Well, that prophecy is an encouragement to us. Be encouraged. Your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to us as a church body. 
And so we can anticipate that with joy this Easter, looking forward to that, looking forward to seeing that that's a king who dies, as we'll talk about on Friday, and a king that not only dies, he does not stay dead, but he's a resurrected king. As we said, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So that begs the question, if this king is coming to us, what kind of king is coming to us? And so I want to look at three characteristics. This is not an exhaustive list of who Jesus is, of course, but it's three characteristics that are exemplified in his earthly ministry leading up to the cross that I want to press into and be refreshed by, um, as the author of Matthew would have us be refreshed by him in um, in the going up to Jerusalem. Okay, so in verse... Uh, in chapter 20, verse 17. Okay, you follow along. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and make no mistake, this is a king knowing that he is going into battle. He is on his way into battle. We see in Colossians 2.15 that at the cross, Jesus would disarm the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He is going to wage war against the spiritual powers of darkness, and he is going to be victorious, we're told in Colossians. The thing is, No earthly king, at least no earthly king in his right mind, rides into battle knowing that he's going to die and be defeated. But that's exactly what Jesus says right here. He says, the the Son of Man will die. He will be given over to the hands of Gentiles. It is a sealed deal. Okay, And, And he knew that the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 7, And all of the prophets and all of the Old Testament pointed forward to them in this way. It's like a lamb led to the slaughter. That Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and knew that in just a short span of time, he would be slaughtered for the sins of the world. That was on his mind. That was on his heart. And still, and still, he walked with his head held high. He walked courageously to the cross. Unreal. No human can bear that weight except for Jesus. We see, I've been asked this question. I think I've even probably asked this question before. If you had one day to live, what would you do with that day? And you get all sorts of answers. You get, oh, I would go uh, to Disneyland. Oh, to just ride Small World one more time. Or I would go skydiving, or I would go rock climbing, or I would do all of these adventurous things. And and when I seriously consider what would I do if I knew I had one day left to live, I realize, man, that question is bogus to begin with. Because if I had one day left to live, I would be solemn. I would be considering what is the direction of my life? What was the past of my life? Where am I headed? What's going on? I'm about ready to give an account for my life to the Lord. I'm going to die. I'm not thinking about small world. Even on my best days, I'm not thinking about small world. Okay? So it's just a huge weight for Jesus to bear, and he bared it with courage. Um, I also think of um, Frodo. So I... I did a sports metaphor last time. I'll do a Lord of the Rings uh, reference this time. We just get them all out of the way. 
Um, but you have Frodo, who, who goes to Mount Doom, taking sin, I mean, the ring, right? And he's got his buddies, he's ascending the hill, and as he gets to the point, that climax of his calling to ditch the ring inside of Mount Doom, he is not even able to make it up the side of the mountain. He's crawling, and then you and then you have his buddy, faithful Samwise Gamgee. Uh, he says this awesome line: I, "I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you." Right? And that would have been Jesus. That's the picture of Jesus moving towards the cross, bearing humanity's sin on his shoulders, knowing that he is going to die a substitutionary death for the sins of the world. An incredible weight, and it begs this this question: How how did he do that? We could say, oh, well, he's God. <laughs> but I want to I I sit with him in his, his humanity for, for just a second. And we see in this passage, it is repeated um, a few times. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. It will happen. By God's sovereignty and God's providence, it is going to happen. There's no getting around it. It was necessary. In, in Luke 18.31, it's made even more apparent, uh, account of the, same, of the same teaching of Jesus. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is set in stone. I, I tell the kids in youth group all the time, God's speaking is equivalent to his doing. If he says it, he's going to do it, and he said it all through the prophets. It was going to happen. Jesus was going to die. He, he knew that it was necessary that he would die for the sins of the world. We also see it in Isaiah 53, verse 10 to, uh, through 11. It says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him, that many should be accounted righteous, and that he should bear their iniquities. Oh, it was going to happen. But... It was, not, it was not that understanding alone because there was also on top of it an understanding and he will be raised on the third day. That, that Jesus does not stay dead. He, he knew that Psalm 1610 pointed forward to himself when it says, you will not abandon my soul to shield the place of the dead. And we're told in Hebrews 12, too, that he did it for the joy that was set before him. He was looking towards the resurrection. He was looking to going to the right hand of the Father. And he let that joy and that hope and that focus informed how he marched towards the cross. Both the death of the cross and both the future life of the resurrection taken together in one in one package deal, in one package experience of our Savior. And in the Christian life, as we live it out, if we are going to faithfully live the Christian life, we have the sorrow of a cross, and we have the joy and the hope of the resurrection together in one. And it, and it creates this uh, tension in the Christian life. It creates a spot that is difficult to walk in, but it is the will of the Lord that we walk in it with him. Um, we have the cross of self-denial together with the resurrection of a found life. He says, lose your life so that in me you'll find it. That's not easy to lose your life. That is very cross-like. That is very death-like. Die to yourself. But then there's the resurrection part. You will find your life 
in me, encouragement and hardship. Or the cross of walking through the valley of darkness together with the joy of knowing that we're doing so not by ourselves, but with the good shepherd who leads us by still waters. That we look out and we see so much hardship, sin, brokenness, uh, but we know that we are being led through it um, to Jesus' side to be encouraged by him and to walk with him, that we do not do it alone. So as, as we celebrate Good Friday, on Friday, and then we celebrate Easter, uh, I want us to remember that there is that tension, and the only way that we're going to be able to make it in the Christian life through that tension is by putting our focus staunchly on the resurrection, that we as believers have the hope of being resurrected. We have the hope of being in the direct presence of the Lord. We have the hope of our fleshly body being put off because Jesus went before us, our conquering king, who killed death. And we know that is our destiny as well, because I am in Christ. And we can let that this Easter say, man, that is good news. And that makes the Christian life endurable. And I can, I can get through it because I have Jesus' resurrection. And we also have the body of Christ. You have the believer that's sitting to your right and to your left to say, man, be encouraged, Christian. Just like in the, in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian had his buddy faithful to be there and encourage him and walk with him along the road. Christian, you have a buddy faithful to walk with you along the Christian road and encourage you and, and hold you and carry you and, and help you and to pray for you and to worship alongside of you. Okay? So the resurrection and the hope of doing it, not alone but with the church body. Okay? So that's a dying king. We are going to worship a dying king uh, this Good Friday and this Easter. And then in verse 20 through 28, we're going to see that we're also worshiping a serving king. Verse 20 says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, and with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? That would be the cup of, of death and suffering at the cross. They said to him, we are able. <laughs> and he said to them, you will drink the cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So we see the, the request of this mom on, on behalf of the sons, like mom going up to do the dirty work of James and John, and, and she wants something. She says, will you guarantee that my sons will be one on your right and one on your left? These would have been the, the places of honor in a kingdom. And, and I've, I've heard um, enough Palm Sunday sermons to, to uh, feel this like temptation to say, 
they shouldn't ask for that. that no, 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 uh, disciples. But I, I think that before I do that, I have to step back and say, well, their eagerness to be seated at the right and the left hand of the Father reflects uh, something of their faith. Because to want to be seated at the right and the left hand of the Father in his kingdom would almost assume the fact that there's going to be a kingdom coming brought on by Jesus in which they can sit to their right and to their left. And so to that amount of faith, you, man, yeah, that's awesome. But they just, they missed it a little bit because the fact that they wanted the position for themselves was deplorable. And, and it reflects an unlike or unchrist-like understanding of both power and honor. Namely, that it is something to be obtained for oneself, and then once you obtain it, it's something to be lorded over another. Like, I am in this position of power, and you are not. Um, that, that sort of understanding of the kingdom is unchristlike. And so as, as I was sitting and pondering these things, um, I thought, man, I, I wonder what sort of job openings Apple has. And so I went to my computer, and I opened it up, and thought, okay, there's a lot of job openings, a big, huge um, company. And here are uh, an example of some of the job openings at Apple. You could apply to be a business expert. You could be a tech expert. You could be a creative pro. Or you could even apply for a job just as a pro, a general pro. Or you could be a, a genius admin or an Apple genius. And I was just waiting, scrolling, hoping that there would be a, an opening at Apple for just a, a genius. Like, oh man, that would be dependent. But that, man, that is a little bit reflective of the sort of idea that the world has of power and authority. That is that the best of the best get these lofty positions and the worst of the worst are where they are because, well, that's their lot. They weren't the genius that I am to be able to get there. But Jesus said, it shall not be so among you, that God's kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And he has a couple positions listed as well here. And those two positions are verse 26, servant, and verse 27, a slave. Those are the positions of the kingdom. And those are obtained by suffering, as we saw in verse 22, and by the preparation of the Father, we saw in verse 23. Speaking, speaking of Israel being gathered, he said, man, Israel is not going to be gathered in Zechariah 4, 6 by their own power and their own might. He says, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. My spirit. It's the Lord who accomplishes these things. It's the Lord who gives position of servant, and it's the Lord who gives the position of slave. And it's a different kind of kingdom, right? That's upside down. That's flipped. That's backwards. That is not like anything that we understand in our daily experience, right? And it's a different kind of um, kingdom because it's sourced under the authority of a completely different kind of king we see at the end. He said, even as the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This is the, the kind of king that we see in Philippians 2, 6 through 7, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, and he took the form of a slave. He took the form of a servant, um, even unto death as he approached the cross. Even his birth was marked by a giving up of something. And it wasn't just a giving up of a little, so I'll just give up my, uh, my equality with God. That was everything. He gave up everything so he could walk through the muck and the mire of this world for you and for me. That's the kind of servant, uh, my king, that, that is over his upside-down kingdom. And throughout his earthly life, he lived a life of poverty and homelessness as he ministered to the overlooked and the despised, the sick and the sinner. He said, foxes, they have holes, they have homes. Birds, they have homes, they have nests. But the son of man, he doesn't have a place to lay his head. He, he was looking for places to stay and, and live as he walked through this world. He didn't set up residence here. And we'll see that, that as he enters into Jerusalem, he didn't plan right then and there to set up residence on this earth then either. And then finally, he, he, didn't, he wasn't subject to death. He, death was not forced upon him, but he allowed himself to be sold into the hands of evil men to pay a debt that he didn't even himself owe. He said, he said to Judas Iscariot, who would betray him for a meager amount of money in the grand scheme of things, said, friend, friend, he, do what you came to do. Allow it to be happened. To allow it to happen. Oh, fourth. It was not an accident. He knew he was going to the cross and he was going to allow it, allow it to happen because he is a servant king. And it begs this question. Do we allow Jesus to serve us? It sounds shocking, but it is his glory to be a servant. If we look just forward a few days, Jesus takes off his robe. He, he gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' dirty feet. <laughs> and he gets to Peter and Peter says, not me, Lord. Man, this is below you, Lord. And he, and he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. Jesus wants to wash each and every one of our feet. He wants to wash his bride, the church, in the water of the word. He wants to do that. He laid his life down so that he could, so that he could make sinners new creations to worship him, all for his glory. But yes, the, he wants to serve you um, to accomplish his glory. And so on Friday, you guys will be served. We will be served the elements. The deacons will bring the cup of juice and will bring this, this bread, this cracker for you to eat, symbolizing Jesus' forgiveness, his blood shed on our account as it washes away our sin and his body broken for us. On that day, are we going to... Are we going to come and do that just because it's something that we do at church. That's just churchy thing to do. We do it once a month, and it's always on the same Sunday of the month, so I'm going to show up and do it because I'm a good church person. Okay? Is that going to be our heart? I hope not. When we come to the table, I would challenge us to prepare our hearts this week. Say, Lord, search my heart. Let me know if there be any unclean thing in there. 
and, and, and he will draw that up and meditate on that as we approach Friday. And then on Friday when that, that cup of juice is in our hand and we, and we drink it and we feel it on the back of our throats, then know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that sin that you hide from everybody else that you don't want anybody to know that you have just recently spent time confessing to the Lord is forgiven freely in Jesus because of his work on the cross, because of his blood shed for me and you. And then when you go forth, go forth knowing that. that take it to the bank that you are forgiven of that sin because of him. And then when we do that, when we really know that, that sin is forgiven and we enjoy that and say, wow, that is awesome, so awesome that that sin that I confessed to the Lord and accepted his cleansing and his forgiveness from, doesn't even seem that good in comparison to the cleansing and the forgiveness that I just freely received in Jesus. Sure, maybe after a while you'll forget it. Maybe after a while I will go forth and fall into the same stupid pit hole that I did last month. And then I will come right back here and say, Lord, will you forgive me of that again? He'll say, grace upon grace, Kai, I love you. You are freely forgiven in me. Do it. Prepare our hearts. Let's prepare our hearts for that on Friday so that we, when we come to the table of the Lord, can do so wholehearted, casting ourselves on the mercies of God. Jesus, something really cool that I really appreciate about Jesus is that he never tells us to do something that he's not willing to do himself. <laughs> and so he said, yeah, go, Sir, be a servant. Not, it shall not be so with you. And then we'll see God models that. Jesus models that as the merciful king in chapter 20, verse 29 through 34. Would you read along with me? It says, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What an awesome story. These, these blind men overlooked, sitting on the side of the road, say, have mercy on us, son of David. Um, a, a Bible dictionary says mercy um, is the aspect of God's love uh, that compels him to alleviate suffering. So you have the alleviation of suffering on one hand and the forgiveness of sins, grace on the other together make this package deal of God's love for us. And so he shows mercy on these suffering blind men on the side of the road. And, and I wonder to myself, what, what are these blind men doing on the side of the road? And, and this would have been a big crowd passing by on their way to Jerusalem for Passover, where they celebrated the time in Israel's past where they killed a lamb and, and God's wrath passed over their house and they went out through the Red Sea that God parted for them to live as, as God's purchased people out of slavery. And they would have said, uh, we're going to always remember that for the entire history of Israel and we're going to look and say, we're going to eat a lamb together and, and remember that time. 
sacrifice a lamb together and then, and then eat it. And so there would have been a huge crowd of God's people going that way. And I think that, I think that these blind people intentionally put themselves in that path knowing that God's people would be going that way to receive something from God's people. They put themselves in the way of God's grace um, and God's mercy, mm -hmm. which is commendable. Do we do that? Do we, do we exercise those um, those things that God has given us to intentionally put ourselves in the way of his grace, Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with one another. Because when we do it, we, set, we, are, we are refreshed and, and renewed and encouraged by the Lord. Okay. But the crowd, they rebuked them. <laughs> it would have been like, there would, it was a sharp, rebuke is a sharp word. It would have been like, shut your pie hole, Bart. Okay, we're told his name's um, Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus in, in Mark's gospel. Um, stop. Don't you know Jesus is too busy for you? Don't you know that Jesus has too much on his plate? Don't you know that Jesus is too important for you, a blind man sitting by the road? He doesn't have time for you. Stop calling out to him. Waste of your time. <laughs> it's not entirely different in um, before telling you guys this story, I, I checked with my friend. I have this really good friend. He's such a good-hearted guy. He has a servant's heart. I love him, friends to this day. Um, <laughs> but this story does not make him look good. And so I, I called and I said, hey, hey, man, can I share that story? And he said, yeah. Um, so we were, we were going from uh, Jacksonville into Medford, and it was late one night, and um, he was driving, and I was in the passenger seat, and he stepped on the brakes. Um, whoa, what do you step on the brakes for? And look for it, and there was a um, family of possums, uh, baby possums out there. And uh, he had ran over the, the mother possum uh, before, and so uh, he said, even when I talked to him on the phone, he said, that's what you always do with roadkill. you got to put them to death. Um, and so he put the mother to death, but then he went so far as to go over to these um, baby possums and and he stomped on them and killed them. And it, I will never forget it. I was like, dude, what was that? Why did you stomp on those possums? I don't remember what he said. To this day, I'm like, dude, why did you stomp on those possums? But that is the attitude of the crowd. Possums on the side of the road, and they would just as soon go stomp on the possums so that Jesus could pass on by. And Jesus said, nope, that's... It's not how it's going to go. He goes to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? He stopped all of the hustle and bustle, the entire procession, so that he might minister to a couple of blind dudes sitting on the side of a dirty road. <laughs> that is totally Jesus. And, and we're told that in pity, he was moved with compassion and in the same way he does that, he looks on me, he looks on you at our, at our inner possum, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And so, I, so there's a shocking, a little bit shocking of an exhortation here. But all I'm going to do is, is I'm going to take Jesus' words this Easter season, and I'm just going to turn them back uh, to you, because you and I are the blind men on the side of the road. And I'm going to ask you this, this Easter season... Contemplate this. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you have expectations? Do you have hopes? Do you have things that you're pleading with the Lord and his mercies for this Easter season? If you don't, I would encourage you 
to think about it. And if you do, if you have things that you need in life and, and that you're desperate for, but you haven't poured it out to Jesus, pour it out to Jesus because it's his glory to show mercy. And yes, yeah, yeah. When, you, when you hear that, it might, it might make you wiggle in your seat a little bit. What? Easter is about Jesus. It's not about me. But Jesus in his glory stepped down and, and he served you. And so you can say, man, what, what, Lord, what? Yeah, what can you do for me? We can know that, that Jesus, who has truly done everything for us in the gospel, is not going to begrudge you your cries for mercy. He's going to say, I'll do anything for you. Not that. <laughs> but, but not that. I'm turning you away on that. Um, you guys can turn there. Romans, Romans 8, 31 through um, 38. Paul just mentions that, that those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. An awesome promise that we have in Scripture. And then he goes on in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this is the part I want us to get. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Nothing is what he goes on to say. That is, that, that he gave everything. He gave his very son to die in front, of, in front of his eyes so that we might have eternal life, why would he begrudge us our request to him? And, and, and we might ask for, Lord, will you fix this chronic illness? Will, will you repair this relationship? Or even will you deliver me from the earthly consequences of my sin that I've, that I've been enduring these, this past time? And I don't, I don't think in the gospel there is any guarantee that he will fix those things. I also don't think that there's anything that says that he won't minister to us in that, in that way. But we can ask him and we can know that through all of those things, through all of the suffering that's associated with walking in a broken world that we have, his presence with us, that he is powerful enough to use those difficult things to bring about his glory, to bring about our sanctification, that when we need comfort, he's there to comfort us and care for us. When we need to learn because we're walking, sometimes it feels like in a scope of fog about this far away from our face, then he says, I will teach you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so even if he sees fit not to alleviate our physical suffering or our broken relationships. He has seen fit to cause his Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart. So if, yeah, so if we, we can ask him, Lord, give, give me your Holy Spirit. You save me, okay? So we get to chapter 21, verse 1 through 11, where that king, right, the, the dying king, the servant king, the merciful king, enters onto the scene. And, and I just want to read this 
And I just want it to wash over us. I just want us to listen and then say, Lord, that you are a good king and this is the king and I'm excited that you are on the scene here to save us from our sins. Okay, so verse 1 through 11 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent his two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them the cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went out before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That expression, Hosanna in the highest, it comes from Psalm 118. Um, verse 25. And Psalm 118 is a, is a messianic psalm, meaning it points forward to Jesus. Um, and it's a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm that would have been sung on their way up to the temple to offer temple sacrifices. And I think that this would have been known by the crowds as they declared um, this phrase, this, this um, declaration of excitement and praise to the King Jesus. He would have known, and so if we're going to really understand the heart of the crowds, we would have to look at Psalm 118, and we'll do that verse 17 through 27. You guys don't have to turn there. I, and that I we can understand is Jesus, shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I, might op- that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders has reject- have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. So the crowds would have said, man, enter through the gate of the Lord. This is marvelous. We're rejoicing. Give us success. The king is here. This would have all been so excited that the king was there to take his throne. But I think that they forgot the second part of verse 27 that says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. It's what Jesus knew, that he was the festal sacrifice brought up to the horns of the altar of the cross. His blood poured out for you and for me so that broken sinners could be in relationship with a holy God. 
so that we could come freely forgiven in Christ before him. They didn't know that he was going to die. They thought maybe he would set up that throne right then and right there. And they were excited about that. And the crowds, I would say they had an incomplete understanding of Jesus' ministry and his fulfillment of prophecy. They knew he was a king. They knew he was going to sit on a throne. They knew that he was going to come as the deliverer. Uh, but they didn't understand that he had to die first and on the third day be raised again. And they didn't know that his throne was going to be an earthly throne at the right hand of the Father. But here's the thing to notice here. Their lacking theology, it didn't render their worship unacceptable to Jesus. He still received their displays of respect and honor as they laid their coats and their branches. He didn't say, you don't even get it. Get out of here. I'm not going to hear your worship. He welcomed their worship, fully knowing where their hearts were at. And if we are going to be honest and try and see ourselves in the crowd, we have to ask ourselves, well, is my theology perfect? And I hope that when we honestly ask ourselves that question, the answer is, no, my theology is not perfect. Does Jesus still hear our worship? Yeah, is he still blessed by it? Yes. Because it's our worship? No. Because he is gracious. Because the only reason that we can worship is because he's poured out his grace on us. So if, if you've been a believer for one hour, one minute, or a decade, or five decades he, we can all come before his throne this Easter season and we can wholeheartedly worship the creator of the universe and be renewed every day in the knowledge of who he is and grow in that uh, with every passing day. So together, yeah, let's just anticipate getting to come to the table on Friday and look to Jesus' death, sit with that in him, feel the, feel the hardship, feel the brokenness, and then on Sunday come and just rejoice as a church body, so grateful that the king is resurrected. Okay. So praise the Lord. Yeah, can we pray? Lord, thank you that... You are not like earthly kings, or that you're a different kind of king, that you are a gentle, lowly, kind, humble king, Lord, that you are patient with us. Uh, you understand our weaknesses that we're beset with, and for that reason, you can make intercession for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would pray for us as we go towards Easter season, that it would be a time of refreshing, it would be a time of deep worship of you because you are the only true king deserving of worship. And so we do that, Lord, as, as your people deeply in need of being renewed and, and grown by you. So we thank you for this opportunity to look towards you this morning and pray that you'd be honored in it even as we go forth into our Sunday. In your name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591 or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. 
Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon, 97459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.